I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Radio legend Studs Terkel was the All-American listener. Ears tuned, mind open, tape recorder always on. The trick, he said, was something he had heard, appropriately enough, from one of his uncelebrated citizens. This was the hospital worker he called Miss Lucy Jefferson. You see, there's such thing as feeling tone. One is friendly and one is hostile. Feeling tone. Feeling tone. And if you don't have this, you just, baby, you've had it. You've got, if you're going to work with people, you've got to have this feeling tone. That feeling tone is the thread of this radio hour, as much as the late Studs himself. He was the voice of Chicago between Carl Sandburg a century ago, hog butcher to the world and all that, and Chance the Rapper today. Home base for more than 50 years was his daily radio hour on a privately owned fine art station in Chicago, WFMT. The news of Studs Terkel that we're happy to share is that 5,000 hours of that radio archive are open anew, being digitized and transcribed, an audio event on a par with the opening of King Tut's tomb. Tony Macaluso manages the Studs Collection at WFMT, and he led us into it this week. Well, Studs Terkel, who a lot of people might know as an oral historian, books like Working and Hard Times, uh, had a daily radio show for 45 years here in Chicago, 1952 mm. to 1997, on WFMT, this fine arts station. And when he retired, after talking to really the who's who luminaries of the 20th century, all of his tapes traveled to the Chicago History Museum, where they were lovingly cared for, but not really accessible to the world. You had to really go in and know that they were there and request to hear them and pay to have them digitized. And thankfully, the History Museum came to us a few years ago. The Library of Congress agreed to take the tapes on and began to digitize them all. And suddenly this treasure trove of, of audio that really covers so many of the key events and people from the 20th century started to become available. And we started hatching plans for how to make them accessible to the world. In this record of voices, we, we have an amazing range. Half a century of history, for one thing. The man's own eccentric, Middle American socialist left-wing view, but also an incredible cast of characters who came through his place, and a technique of interviewing. I mean, where do you want to begin in, in leading us through the great examples of Studs Terkel's work? I think one key thing that is so important to me as I try to understand what makes this special, you know, Studs was, of course, a journalist, an oral historian, but he was also man of the theater. He was an actor. He was a radio drama actor. He had a nationally syndicated TV show. And that sense of theatricality is so much a part of these. It's not, they're really not interviews. They're, they're conversations sort of performed for posterity in many ways. You know, I feel like he was mm-hmm. aware of making an archive. So if you think about him with, say, Muhammad Ali, for example, mid-70s, Muhammad Ali has just gotten out of jail for refusing to go to Vietnam. And doing his thing, the floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee, sort of performing for studs. But I think the pressure's on you, because, see, heavyweight champions, American athletes, are not supposed to do this. They're supposed to be good boys. <laughs> Did you say Roy? No, I said you're Roy. supposed to be good, good little boys. Oh, Troy, Troy. Yeah, Troy, Roy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, you said boy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, well... I just got by easy. So many people went to jail. I, did, I had 
public and threat of trouble in other countries helped me. But what about the little man in black or white who's in jail for not liking it? Don't nobody know he's in jail. He's not been praised for been having to take a stand. I didn't really suffer. I had was watching me. I was rich. The world saw me. I had lawyers to fight it. I was getting credit for being a strong man. So that didn't really mean nothing. What about, I remember the man that had to go to jail named Joe Brown or Sam Jones who don't nobody know who's in the cell. You understand? During his time, he ain't got no lawyer's fees to pay. And when he get out, he won't be praised for taking a stand. So he's really stronger than me. I had the world watching me. My, I ain't so great. I didn't do nothing that's so great. What about the little man don't nobody know? He's really the one. One of Stud's closest friends for many decades was the great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson. They performed together in, in events before he had his radio show, and Stud's had Mahalia on many times. And the way that he engaged with her and her music and really was a champion of gospel, but also brought her music into so many other interviews. And they were a natural duo like Laurel and Hardy or you know Vladimir and Estragon for Waiting for Godot. They had such a great rapport uh, Mahalia, the the devout gospel singer, and Studs, the uh, you know, as he liked to call himself, an agnostic, a cowardly atheist, and how they debated whether it was talking about politics or religion or art is one of the great joys in the archive. When I'm on the stage and on television and working with white people, they just hug me and love me and say I'm so wonderful and I'm so great. And then when I'm walking down the street like an ordinary citizen, they don't. Uh, rec- uh, recognize me, and when I go into the department store in the South, they uh, I can't get a sandwich, I can't get a bottle of pop, I got to stand, I can't even get a cab, and I'm just the Mahila Jackson that they got through saying how wonderful I am. What, what I don't understand is what, yeah. what make people act like that. Well, this is the big question, Mahalia, the split in people. Yeah, you know, it's the most distasteful thing to hear a white man call your man your husband or your brother a boy. Like, he's, that, he's no boy. He's a man like anybody. That's disrespect. That's the height of, of, uh, of ignorance, complete ignorance. And I'm so hate about it. It keeps me praying, you know, for the Lord not, not to let hate get in my heart. This world will make you think, I tell you. I love it as a social note that Stud Turkle met Martin Luther King courtesy of his great friend, Mahalia Jackson. Yes. He interviewed white people, too, including Carl Sagan, Buckminster Fuller, Bertrand Russell, for crying out loud. Well, the Bertrand Russell conversation is is really fascinating. You know, Studs didn't just interview people in a studio here in Chicago. He took his portable tape recorder literally all over the world. He was in South Africa, China, the Soviet Union, Italy. And in 1962, when the Cuban Missile Crisis had just erupted, he was in England, actually in Wales, visiting Bertrand Russell, the the great Wisen philosopher. And it's a conversation that is so of the moment. Bertrand Russell, who was born, you know, in the thick of the Victorian era, here he is, you know, in the 1960s, weighing in on possible impending nuclear catastrophe. It's quite a slice of history. I'm seated in a very delightful room facing the mountains and the scene is so peaceful. The clock, I hope it's not the clock of doom, but merely announces noon. I'm seated opposite the distinguished, the eminent British philosopher, Lord Bertrand Russell. Let me ask you a leading question, Lord Russell. On which side are you in this nuclear contest? I'm not in either side. I think the contest is folly. 
and uh, what I want is to get the contest to die down. It's like uh, waves at sea after a great storm. Gradually the waves get less. And uh, that's what I should like to see. Tony Macaluso, we're just knocked out by his conversation with James Baldwin. Before Baldwin was a household word, this was 1961. He got James Baldwin talking with, with an almost chemical trick. It was music, of course. I want to hear it, but I want you to tell us what Studs is showing us about interviewing. And this is one of Studs's the techniques that I think is so interesting. And one of the things that I find about the archive that's so interesting is just the ability to do that, exactly that. Think about the art, the nature of conversation or interviewing. So in this case, he opens the program with a Bessie Smith track. He knew that James Baldwin had brought a Bessie Smith album record with him when he left the United States, went to Switzerland to work on his first novel. To be able to just let Baldwin start the program by them listening to that music together and then you hear this sigh from Baldwin, and a bit later he, you know, lights a cigarette up during the interview. It's, you know, one thing, 1961, you get a lot of smoking on the air. The breath, studs refer to this notion of the feeling tone, which is the quality of somebody's voice beyond the, the literal meaning of their words, but the pauses and the sighs and the laughter and the, the way of inhaling and changing pitch. is one of the rare men in the world who seems to know who he is today. James Baldwin, brilliant young Negro-American writer. And as you listen to this, Jim, to this record of Bessie Smith, what's your feeling? It's very hard to describe that feeling. Um, what struck me was the fact that she was singing, as you say, about a disaster, which had almost killed her, and she had accepted it and was going be and was going beyond it. It's a um, it's a fantastic kind of understatement in it. It's the way I want to write, you know. When she says, "My house fell down and I can't live there no more," it's a great it's a great sentence. It's a great it's a great achievement. That 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 winter in Switzerland, I was working on my first novel, which it, I thought I'd never be able to finish. And I finally realized in Europe that one of the reasons that I couldn't finish this novel was because I was ashamed of where I'd come from and where I'd been and ashamed of the life in the church and ashamed of my father, ashamed of the blues and ashamed of jazz and of course ashamed of watermelon because it was, you know, all of these stereotypes that uh, the country inflicts on Negroes that you, that, you know, that we all eat watermelon or we all do nothing but sing the blues and all that. Well, I was afraid of all that and I ran from it. And when I say I was trying to dig back to the way I myself must have spoken when I was little, I realized that I had acquired so many affectations. I had um, told myself so many lies that I really had buried myself uh, beneath a whole fantastic image of myself, which wasn't mine, but white people's image of me. And I realized that I had not always talked. Obviously, I hadn't always talked the way I had forced myself to learn how to talk. And I had to find out what I had been like in the beginning. And order, just technically then, you know, to recreate Negro speech, I realized it was a cadence, it was a beat, and Bessie had the beat, you know. And in that, um, this icy wilderness, you know, as far removed from Harlem as anything you can imagine, with Bessie Smith and me, 
I began and white to, snow. And white snow and white mountains and white faces. And in this kind of isolation, it's very hard to describe, uh, I managed to finish the book. And I played Bessie every day. Coming up, Studs Terkel's politics. He was a born peacenik and a Chicago soft socialist from Depression days, which made him just left enough to get blacklisted in the 1950s. This is Open Source. Studs Terkel was born in 1912 of Polish-Jewish immigrants who called their Chicago rooming house the Wells Grand Hotel. So picture the raucous lobby that formed Studs' imagination, his taste for theater, for human variety, and the politics of the down and out. Alan Weeder wrote an oral history of how Studs got to be Studs. I'm not sure that there's a definition for Studs in terms of his politics. He was an American, and he thought America should really be a democracy, and he didn't think that it was. I think of Studs as an American soft socialist, and what I mean by that is Mm. that his political views were formed by his experiences and the ideas he took from those experiences. They weren't formed from reading Marx and Engels. Even though he was an avid reader, he wasn't a man of theory and never was a man of theory. Hmm. As a teenager, Studs grows up in this men's hotel. He sits in the lobby and here are these characters that you can never imagine. And he describes them in the books, and he describes the religious fanatic, and he describes the wobbly, and he describes the person that never can get a job but somehow finds his rent. It sounds like theater, a little bit of Marx Brothers' Day at the Races. I mean, think about it. He he chose a life of theater in the 30s. After going to law school, I mean, he just kind of he became a bureaucrat, but his life became theater. And it was not just theater. It was workers' theater. I mean, he was part of the Chicago Repertory Theater, and they did plays in small theater settings, but they also did bars and union halls. And that, too, was one of the great political effects on him. Review and explain Studs' short television career. Studs took out a show called Studs Place. This is Studs Place. Any minute, there'll be a story happening here. <laughs> Funny thing, there always is when we drop in and was part of what's been referred to um, as Chicago television. And there was a move that they thought Chicago would join New York and Los Angeles as a major, major television hub. And Kukla, Fran, and Ali was one of the other shows, and the Dave Garraway show was another. All three shows were very different. Studs took place in a little diner, and he was Studs. (laughs) Studs Terkel as Studs. Holy mackerel. This is the red letter day. This is the big event. Oh, she's been doing us talking about it. And it had political themes. The waitress wore union buttons that you could see on the grainy black and white TVs. Hmm. They were the first TV show, I think, to do an episode on blindness They were the first TV show to show a pregnant woman. And those things sound silly now, but at that point, they weren't silly. He had Bill Brunsey on the show, so there was African-Americans on the show. And all three shows were slated to move to New York. And Kulka, Fran, and Ali, and Garraway obviously did move to New York. And Studs wouldn't sign the loyalty oath. 
and Studs' place was canceled when Studs was blacklisted. Loyalty oath, we've forgotten, but you had to forswear the violent overthrow of the United States government. Yes. Later, he kind of joked about it in saying what it would mean to sign a loyalty oath. If I really wanted to blow up the government, why would I care if I signed a loyalty oath? But at the time, it was very serious to him, and he refused to agree to that. And he did that twice in his life. He did that then. And then when he worked as the announcer for Mahalia Jackson's show in Chicago, he refused again. And that's even in some ways a more interesting story because they came to Studs and Mahalia saw Studs arguing with the CBS network representative who came from New York. And she came up and she said, what's going on? And the representative told her, And she said to Studs, you're not going to sign, right? And Studs said, no, I'm not going to sign. And she said, no Studs, no Mahalia. And that was the end. They didn't press it. And so the show went on. And maybe that speaks to 53 or 54 being already a different time than 1949. Alan Weider's book on Studs Terkel is subtitled Politics, Culture, But Mostly Conversation. Rick Kogan is a newspaper guy and a radio voice in Chicago today. He grew up modeling himself on one of his father's best pals, in effect his own, Uncle Studs. When Studs and my father met, it was uh, after World War II, and they were part of what you would characterize as the Chicago literary and theater community. Studs had spent much of his career as an uh, actor on stage and on radio, he always played, uh, because of his kind of voice that was like this, he always played mobsters on the radio. But he had just gotten into his own radio show, which was first originally called The Wax Museum, hmm. and later just The Studs Terkel Show, on which he expressed his interest in the arts and in politics and in civil rights uh, by hosting literally the who's who of the last half of the 20th century, you you could, or your listeners could, think of a notable person. And I guarantee you that that person was interviewed for an hour on WFMT radio by Studs Terkel. Too late for Al Capone. That would have been, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that would have been one of the most fascinating interviews, because Studs did have an ability. He was a great talker, but he also was a great listener, and I would have loved to see him try to drag whatever he could have dragged out of Al Capone. Take your own bait. What's his opening line to Al Capone? Uh, they call you, uh, you're referred to mostly in the press as a, as a mobster and a bootlegger. What do you think of yourself? What do you call yourself, Mr. Capone? That would not be bad. I think Stutz would be okay with that because when he was on, when he did, which is one of the most fascinating things, the... The Studs Terkel archive will eventually have 5,600 hours of Studs' interviews. Right now, as we speak, there are probably about 1,600 already available, one of which is among the most fascinating interviews I've ever heard. It is with a 23-year-old, Bob Dylan, and Studs describes him uh, in the opening of that show. I'm sort of wildly paraphrasing it a bit. He goes, we have here in the studio young a young poet, a poet singer. He looks like Huckleberry Finn, if Huckleberry Finn were alive in the 20th century. How can we describe you, Bob Dylan? 
rumpled trousers, curly hair. No, where are you from, beginning? Where did you come from? Well, the, the beginning, you know, was uh, there in Minnesota. But uh, that, that was the beginning before the beginning. <laughs> the and beginning was, uh, and the, the interesting thing about the first ten minutes of the of the bit is he he literally browbeats he twists Dylan's arm and Dylan is certifiably the Dylan we have all come to know sort of mysterious and obtuse and Stud says your 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 song your song a hard rain's gonna fall it's about it's about uh, nuclear acid rain. And until it's like, well, no, it's really about the poison that is spread by people on the radio and in newspapers. No, no, it was it atomic didn't. rain. No, well, go ahead. somebody else thought that too. Uh-huh. Well, go ahead. Yeah, it's not atomic well, rain. Go ahead. It's just a hard rain. It's hard not atomic rain. rain. No, the the hard rain is gonna fall. Is in the last verse when I, when I say uh, where the pellets of poison are flooding the waters. I mean all the lies, you know, all the lies that that. People get told in the radios and the newspapers, and trying to take people's brains away. So it's truly, it's it's truly amazing. And then right after that, Stud goes, "Well, could you, could you maybe, could you play it? Could you play it for me? I want to. I'd like to see you play it." And Dylan's like, "Well, no. It it'd sound a lot better if you just play it off the disc. <laughs> just play it off the disc." And Stud's like, "Well, I know that, but but I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see what it's like." And Dylan is still reluctant in that way. Well, I, I think it would be better off the disc. It would sound a lot better. If you take it off the disc, I could, uh, I could sing the song, but it, would, it takes a long so time this, to sing. Well, but I, I'd love to. I just, I just, if you could, if you could, just, I'd love to see it, to see a play. I would like you to sing it. I'll tell you why after you sing it. Yeah? And then what you hear is Dylan, obviously with some reluctance, Unpacking his guitar from his guitar case, man, and performing A Hard Brain's Gonna Fall Live. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? And the rest of the show is equally interesting because Dylan plays about four more songs and talks to studs about Woody Guthrie, and about the meaning of life, and it is an it it may indeed Dylan might have done a previous uh, radio show in New York, maybe, but uh, this might indeed be Dylan's first. Certainly, it's his first hour-long interview, and it's 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 beyond it's beyond compelling. I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard, and it's hard. It's a hard, and it's a hard, Every important figure in art, entertainment, politics, film. There's a fascinating interview, for instance, available now with uh, Sidney Poitier talking about the meaning of acting and the meaning of being a black actor from, you know, it's 1953. Uh, can I call you Sydney? You better. Uh, we met, and I think we know each other. We have a feeling that we do know each other fairly well. Certainly. Well, Sid, the questions we'll ask, let's make this a free rambling sort of interview. Your feelings in being in a movie like The Defiant Ones. You might say this movie is sort of a poem, in a sense, sort of a blues. It opens 
with your voice singing Long Gone as the credits superimpose and the movie mm -hmm. begins. Mm -hmm. And Sydney, perhaps I'm asking a bit, but can you recall that? Do you feel like right now, a cappella, just as you did then, you feel like, can you recall some of the words and just... To the song? Yeah. Uh, long Gone represents a real history lesson, but it's also wildly, wildly entertaining. You were the son of Studs Terkel's best friend, drinking pal, yep. guy, a kind of uncle to you. No question. What kind of uncle are we talking about? He was an uncle who taught me a lot of lessons, and not by lecture, but by by example, I will tell you a quick story. He told me his after his wife died and people were worried that he was soon to go and he wound up living quite some time after that. Mm. But he's gone, Rick, when I, when I check out, he never used the word die or death because he was a hotel kid. He grew up in a hotel, rooming house. And he, uh, he wrote his own epitaph. And it was. Wow. He said, Rick, you got to put this in the paper. When I, of course, I wrote his obituary. You got to put this in the paper when I check out. I go, what is it? So I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to hear about it, but go ahead. Uh, this is it. Curiosity did not kill this cat. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, that is just, that is too good. And I think that's true. I think he got up every day thinking even into his 90s what can i learn today what can i hear today that i didn't hear yesterday what piece of music what can i read today that that i didn't read yesterday i thought he he few people i know maybe none uh savored the excitement of life as much as he did so those are if he was an uncle man he taught me he didn't leave me any money but he left me that Rick Kogan is just one piece of the Studs legacy that's alive in Chicago today. The poet Kevin Koval is another. But Studs might well have moved on to Chance the Rapper, the gospel-inflected singer-songwriter of the rising generation. Studs was a stage-door fan of wave after wave of performers, no matter that pop sounds kept changing. Once upon a time, rocker Janis Joplin was the new thing, and Studs tracked her backstage. That was Janis Joplin singing Turtle Blues. You'll hear the conversation with Miss Joplin in a moment. It was in the rather shoddy dressing room of the old Aragon Ballroom. It was packed that night, and the audience overwhelmingly young. I have slight reservations about her at this moment as a singer of blues, but nonetheless, the powerful animal quality that she has obviously registers with the young who identify with her quite closely. And we pick up with a conversation in the very crowded, improvised dressing room as various other rock artists are passing through the corridor. To go on, you have to go on very soon to the Aragon here. Yeah. Uh, prettiness. You know, for years we think of the young girl and pretty songs, the pretty singer. That's, that's, that's very good that you brought that up because no one's ever brought that up before. I think that's a really valid point. Most chick singers, they're very ladylike in their conduct, their everything. That's why I don't think they sing, sing the blues. I don't mean to sound trite, but I mean, you can't sing the blues and have your hair bleached platinum blonde and, you know, look like a cheerleader. You gotta be able to, you know, act a little, feel a little, think a little, you know, guts. And, and so most chicks don't do that. The credo of uh, Janis Joplin, 
It's very simple, isn't it? You must, nobody can tell you what to do. That's right, baby. <laughs> when kids come back to see you, you get the feeling among them that this is what they're looking for, too. When it's working, it makes you get outside of your head and just have a good time. And that's what I think kids are after. I mean, I know there's wars going on and things like that, but I'd rather just get stoned and have fun. Pete Seeger sounded more like Studs' friend Woody Guthrie, and he asked Studs to sing along on the radio. How many, how many pretty Polly-type songs are there of the boy doing well, in the girl, you know, the American tragedy? Must be hundreds of those, perhaps. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Now, you did one, I remember, some time ago, called John Dooley. Uh, John Dooley. Tom Dooley. Tom Dooley. That was that. That's number? a nice song. Now, that was a post-Civil War song, was it? Or? I've been told it was. He came, as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, he came home from the wars and he found his girl uh, was unfaithful. That's the story. Uh-huh. I wouldn't guarantee it's well, true. Well, how, how does Tom Dooley do it? Do your listeners ever sing along with the radio? Well, let's try it uh, now. Because this so, got an awful nice all chorus. Right. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're bound to die. That's the chorus. Next time around, you can hum along with me. You too, Stuart. All right. And you too, Norman, back there behind the glass. I met her on the mountain. There I took her life. I met her on the mountain and stabbed her with my knife. Oh, hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, poor boy, you're bound to die. Fetch me down my banjo, I'll pick it on my knee. This time tomorrow, I'll be hanging on a white oak tree. Oh, hang down your head, Tom Dooley, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, poor boy, you're bound to die. I can't remember all the verses. Oh, that's, that's fine. That, that sets us in the mood here. Studs Terkel's voice merging into Walt Whitman's in our own last conversation with the great man two years into the war in Iraq. This is Open Source. Studs Terkel had grown up on something like a vaudeville stage inside the Wells Grand Hotel, and the feel of it went with him to the end. He was a real actor, in fact, and he could improvise shtick with the best, 
The playwright David Mamet, for example. You have a deal with the man. With Fletcher? Yeah. We had a deal with Bobby. What does that mean? Nothing. You don't? No. What did you mean by that? I didn't mean a thing. You didn't? No. You're full of shit, Teach. I am? Yes. Because I got the balls to face some facts? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> and here is Studs matching the nonsense of his friend, the actor-comedian Ciro Mostel, who had also been blacklisted. He came to Chicago to star in the absurdist Ionesco play about the man who became a rhinoceros. As you probably suspect here, we're coming closer and closer to the basis of this interview, uh, the role that you play and the play itself, UNESCO Rhinoceros. Why are you changing the subject? No, we're coming to it. No, we're coming to fields. We're coming to... Just a second. Can I talk what I want to say? He changes. There's another cups in it. We're coming to fields. Yeah. You said something about challenging the mores of our day. Yeah. Beating old women, kicking little children, such as baby Leroy. Well, he never kicked him. I think it's a a reaction against false sentiment is wonderful. If a kid bites you in the finger, I think maybe you should bite him back. You know, I think that's the the extent of it. I don't think it's... I think it's just the fact that he refuses to conform to what goes on. Don't you think? I'm asking you. No, I'm asking you, wise guy. (laughs) The question of refusing to accept certain values of our day. Isn't this UNESCO's point? Yes, it's UNESCO's point as well. And uh, any, uh, for myself, I like anything that defies tradition. Oh, excuse me, the (laughs) cigarette just This is a visual gag of the audience, Mm. Mr. (laughs) The cigarette flew out of Mr. Mostel's mouth. We'll let that go. Across the room and... (laughs) Almost killed the proprietors of the station. Uh, 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 where was I? About the matter of... Uh, why was I there? <laughs> why were you? Hey, where am I going? <laughs> See, waiting for Godot. No, what are we doing yeah. here? Waiting. What? Waiting for what? Waiting for this to be over. It'll never be over. <laughs> oh! Waiting for Godot. Tony Macaluso, the archivist at WFMT, noted how Studs's theatrical past informed his radio voice. It's interesting. I think, you know, Studs himself developed a kind of persona. People who are familiar with him having seen him in videos or later in life, red checkered shirt, red socks, crumpled hat, cigar, just a whole way of being. And in many ways, he created a persona as, as much as Charlie Chaplin did with The Little Tramp or mm. Buster Keaton did with his persona. And I think that's part of the magic of it. I mean, there's, and there's nothing disingenuous about that any more than Keaton or Chaplin were disingenuous with the kind of the personas they created for film, but that he is part of his radio life, different when he was doing his book interviews, and that's a whole other side of him and the way that he did that. But on, on the radio, that was part of it, and part of it was creating a sense of, of occasion, getting people to bring their full attention, energy, full selves. You know, he had one hour to talk with people with very few rules or constraints. Now, he developed his own structure around that and prepared. And out of that came a certain improvisation, too. But it is also interesting how much... It's not about him asking necessarily many, many quick questions or even trying to get a story. It's really about a flow of ideas and getting a sense of how a certain person thinks, which can be hard to do in, in a media context. No, they are like jazz duets in many ways. He's playing to the other person and he's playing off the other person. Yes, Some more of your own favorites, Tony. 
maybe my all-time favorite, because it's the program that really opened my eyes up to the archive when I first heard it about a dozen years ago, is a program he did with and for his good friend Nelson Algren, the great Chicago writer. And mm-hmm. 1958, Algren had, had hit some hard times. His love affair with Simone de Beauvoir had ended and breaking his heart, his reputation as a writer, the kind of writing that Algren did, this poetic but gritty urban writing uh, had sort of passed other kinds of writing, had come to the fore in terms of popular taste. And so Studs and his great producer, Jim Unrath, Jimmy Unrath, worked with Algren to put together this one-hour program called Coming at the Door that synthesized bits of pieces from Algren's novels and stories and poems and essays with music and Algren, Studs, uh, an actress named Helen Malone, all performing it as actors. So this is not an interview or a conversation. It's really a full-on, I guess you could almost say radio drama, but a kind of collage sound art program that, to me, invokes the mood of Chicago and cities and destitute people, but also the poetry of the L, you know, Chicago's train rumbling through at night. And it's just gorgeous and captivating and, to me, suggests a whole genre of radio that has been you know, very much underexplored in recent decades. I wish Studs did more programs like that. There are side street bars that burn all night, blue oases and deserts of pavement and rail. Between the pretzel bowl and the pinball machine, wait nobody's, nobody knows. Waiting for the wind to die down or the rain to cease, a World Series to start and a score to come in, for snow to stop falling or a day to end. There are blue oases that burn all night in deserts of pavement between rail and rail, where nobody's, nobody knows, wait the whole night long, each for his own lifelong life to begin. One of Studs Turkle's right hands in production, Sidney Lewis, works down the road from us at public station WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. We really became friends and colleagues, but mostly it was just really fun working with him because he was a wonderful human being, and I feel like he's still alive somewhere, gnashing his teeth at what's going on. Conversation was a bit of a sacrament to him. It had a quality. Can you describe what he was looking for, how he defined his goals? I mean, he would always recount this woman he interviewed early on, when tape recorders were not ubiquitous and her kids were in the room and they wanted to hear her voice, wanted to hear her voice. And uh, so he played it back and she, she's listening to herself and she said, oh my God, I never knew I felt that way. So what he was interested in and able to elicit from people was often thoughts they didn't know they actually had. Sydney, speak about his wife, Ida. She was his most important audience. He would just sometimes, as he was working on a manuscript for the book, uh, editing an interview, he would read aloud to her his work, often. And after every radio program, which was five days a week, five hours a week, the first call, he'd call her and ask her, what chat I do? She informed his consciousness. She was very political. She was had been a social worker. I've had a sense that her politics was more, maybe further left, but more intense than his, even. She was an activist for much of her life. Actually, when they requested their FBI files, he was a little ashamed because hers was a lot bigger. What were the ritual questions on the Stud Circle questionnaire? Sometimes very personal People so much appreciated him and felt 
gifted by that hour. I mean, five days a week to get to listen to him. It was school. It was a whole education. It meant a lot to him to be loved, to be appreciated. And in his later years, he would worry. This is why the audio archive makes me cry with gratitude. We'd be sitting around and he'd say, kid, because he always <laughs> called me kid, a lot of people kid. He'd say, kid, you think I'm going to be remembered? He really wondered. It really mattered to him. So this audio archive is making him very happy wherever he is. Sidney Lewis's colleague at WCAI, Jay Allison, produces the NPR storytelling hour known as The Moth, which draws on a certain stud's enthusiasm and extends it deep into the digital cosmos, all those empowered individual voices of the podcasting era. Well, I think he'd be happy here. You know, I mean, he was the greatest advocate for the human voice. I mean, he felt like it carried everything. That and fabulous instrument, Vox Humana, he called it. Yes. And uh, he said, you know, you forget everything you see on TV, but you remember what you heard on the radio. Mm. And I think he, the, the other thing he'd like about podcasting is, and to some degree public radio, he inspired us, those of us who work in public radio, is the egalitarian nature of the medium, the idea that everybody's invited, you know, and that everybody gets to have their voice heard. That that was what he championed. And then many of us who were inspired by him have tried to champion since, you know, like step up to this microphone and make it yours and say what you have to say and uh, everybody pay attention. <laughs> and believe in your voice. Yes. Yeah. Amen. What do you hear? Well, I, you know what you hear when you listen to Sud, you hear him listening mm. and it's amazing. I, I only came to know him later in life when he was really quite deaf and uh, it was a fascinating juxtaposition that America's greatest listener couldn't hear, but he still had a quality of attention that put you on your game and made you feel as if every word mattered and that he was absorbing them all. And it, it was like being back in school, you know, with a great teacher and that he thought you were a great student Probably based on nothing, but you it was your job to live up to that presupposition that he had about you, that you were worth listening to. In working and the good war, lots of things, he gloried in the storytelling form, which has had a huge new vogue in your time, Jay. He also had politics in his show, which would be very, very hard to find on radio, certainly public radio nowadays. Mm -hmm. So... What is the example in Studs Terkel for you and, and your students, Jay? Well, you know, oddly, we tend to go to a piece of his that's not really characteristic. It's called Born to Live. And it's just an incredible kind of meditation on the planet and life around the planet. And it's a, it's a work of audio art way ahead of its time that he produced with an engineer whose name I'm going to forget, but I think it might be Unrath. Yes, it was. Uh, and the two of them turned out this piece of work that a, a lot of us keep going back to realizing that it was produced in, you know, with very basic ne technology. I think it's pre-multi-track. It was probably, you know, lining up a whole lot of reel-to-reel -reel machines and firing them off together and Studs' voice kind of conducting the whole thing. 
And uh, that's the piece I go to uh, when I think of Studs Terkel on the radio. Born to die? What about in between the time you're born and the time you die? Man is a long time coming. To paraphrase the old Chicago poet, man may yet win. Brother may yet line up with brother. Who can live without hope? In the darkness, with a great bundle of grief, the people march. In the night, and overhead, a shovel of stars for keeps, the people march. Where to? What next? From Jay Allison and Woods Hole back to late, late Studs Terkel in conversation with us on Open Source in 2005. The occasion was the 150th anniversary of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And how could we toast that great hymn to America without Studs Terkel? At the age of 93, Studs was the second oldest voice on our Whitman program after the poet Stanley Kunitz, who was 100. But Studs wasn't looking back to Whitman time. He was drawing Whitman forward into the time of George W. Bush's Iraq War. We can learn from Whitman today, every human being is important, that the Iraqi war is obscene. Not just bad for America, it's obscene. The deaths, not only of good young American kids, but of scores of thousands of Iraqi men were... Why? For what purpose? It was not World War II, which was a horrible thing to begin with. There is no such thing as a good war. I wrote that book, The Good War. I was in quotation marks because the adjective and noun don't fit. I wish there were more Whitman, and also not just reading him, but talking about him. This matter of the trades and the work and the jobs they do, the non-celebrated. See, he celebrates... The non-celebrated, our appreciation of life itself, yourself, of myself, I sing. Yeah. He embraces the world, you see, because I'd use profanity, and, whereas he's a poet. He's always pertinent and relevant, today more so than ever. This is embracing the world instead of bring him on. We have a young Neanderthal. We speak of the neocons and neolibs. They're neo-Neanderthals at work. They are, you know. Our children's children's children, if the nuttiness prevails, we are the most feared nation in the world. Whitman saw us the most beloved nation in the world. Imagine, then, a nightmare that is anti-Whitman if the world blows up. Our children's children's children will come out of caves with bull eyed on back and club in hand and they'll see this darkness and they'll be scared and they'll be Neanderthals and they'll say there's a tribal memory and that tribal memory will emerge certain words and they'll say Shakespeare who that? you know uh, ode 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 on a Grecian urn what that? leaves of grass what? Where? Where is it? It could be that. In other words, it could be 
anti-Whitman. Whitman is the opposite of all that. He's saying it's grand, the life, the grandness of everyday life, breathing, of living, of doing, the grandness of the ordinary things and of the work and the pride in it, and all that is there. So I especially am enamored of Whitman. Thank you, Studs Terkel, and that fabulous instrument, Vox Humana. Thank you, Tony Macaluso, Alan Weeder, Rick Hogan, Sidney Lewis, and Jay Allison. Thanks also, Kevin Koval and Allison Shine Holmes, and all the heroes at WFMT in Chicago. We have a playlist of extras from the Studs Terkel archive. Check Errol Garner, John Cage, Ethel Merman, all of them on our website and in our excellent newsletter this week. Visit us at radioopensource.org and get lost in radio glory. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and think about making a donation to the hardest working team in radio. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, Homa Sarabi Donay, Jane Yue, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our fabulous instrument. Oscar Peterson plays us out as he played for Studs Terkel in Chicago. I'm Christopher Leighton. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source. This will be the first of a series when next you come to town again. I'd be delighted if you will be my guest again. Thank, Thank you, you very much. It would be a pleasure.